Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Witch of the West, and you are listening to Once Upon a Fan podcast. Enjoy, because it's wicked. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this special double header edition of the Once Upon a Fan podcast. I am your host, Zach Van Norman, and I am joined by my co-host... Ashley Benson. And and this is the Once Upon a Fan podcast. Ashley is sleep-deprived. That is my name for this week. Yes, Ashley is very sleep-deprived, so um, bear with her, all of you, won't you? Mm. Um, and also, thank you all for bearing with us over the past couple of weeks as we put on our social media. Um, you know, we haven't had a couple of our podcast episodes able to go up because I was recently um, in a situation where... My car was totaled, and I have had issues with scheduling. So we appreciate your patience. Sorry that we were not able to get our review of the Garden of Forking Paths up for you. Um, Just as you may have seen from the title of the episode um, on Blog Talk Radio and everywhere else, this is going to be a doubleheader. As I mentioned before, we're going to be reviewing Beauty and um, Greenbacks in the same episode. So just want to let you guys know how that's going to work there. But first, we've actually got some news bulletins to get into with you guys. So we're going to discuss those here, um, which are the new episode titles. We've been keeping you guys alert to what those new titles are and who they've been written by. And we've got some new information now. So we last left off with episode 710, which um, I don't have in front of me, so I don't remember the title of it. But that's the one that we left off at. So now we know that the winter finale this year is called Secret Garden. It was written by... Series creators Adam Horowitz and Eddie Kitsis. I'm not really surprised by this title at all. They've been playing into this Secret Garden kind of theme um, this half of the season, especially with the hyacinths growing and Lucy throwing seeds in the garden and things like that. So I'm not really too surprised by it. Um, We'd actually had made a guess that there was going to be a Secret Garden kind of element to this part of the story a couple episodes ago. I'm happy to see that that is the case. And then the premiere, it looks like, for um, the, I guess, the, what, the spring premiere? We don't really know if they're going to be splitting the seasons or not yet, like they didn't say. Um, But anyways, episode 712 is called A Taste of the Heights, and it was written by David H. Goodman and Brigitte Hales. Um, I think it's really interesting that it's called A Taste of the Heights, considering that in this episode of Greenbacks, we see that Jacinda and Sabine are starting a food truck so Mm. i'm wondering if that's going to be um kind of playing into tiana's history um i also saw in a recent article which i can't i don't even know if it was recent i don't even remember where it was from i think it was entertainment weekly talking about how they're actually looking to get prince naveen into once upon a time in the second half of the season which is why he didn't show up in greenbacks 
Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty interesting too. Um, we've had a little bit of some casting news as well, but we're actually going to save those new bul- news bulletins for when we're into our episode review because we have a feeling that they may be pertinent to the story. So first, as I said, we're going to get into Beauty, our review of Beauty, um, which was written by Dana Horgan and Leah Fong. And it's truly one of my favorite episodes of the Rumbell story, potentially one of my favorite episodes of Once Upon a Time in general. I feel like the Beauty and the Beast story, the whole flashback and everything happening there in the episode Beauty can compete with the entirety of Skin Deep all on its own. But then when you throw in the additional stuff of what was going on with... um with like Alice and Weaver and everything that was happening there. I just thought that was really, really interesting. So yeah, that that's kind of my, my initial takeaway of this episode. Ashley, what'd you think? I honestly thought it, it, it is the strongest episode of this new season, like bar none. Um, and for the exact reasons you said, the flashback portions and the present day portions were very balanced in that you didn't feel um like i wasn't watching and be like okay no get back to hyperion heights okay no get back to the the edge of realms or whatever the official title was of where they were at but i felt i wanted to know what was going on in both storylines like i was it was completely captivated with whatever was on the screen and it looked gorgeous but it was it was also very compelling stories and this is one of the I think we had said in past episodes where it's like, oh, you know, I don't want them to go back to Storybrooke so much because, you know, don't remind us of where we're not at anymore. Mm-hmm. But with this, it worked, and I appreciated yeah. it. And, and delving into that really worked. And then fleshing out Alice, which, you know, I know, I kind of was, like, on the fence about her. Like, I'm very, very excited about Alice now after this episode. I think this was... A great like I mean her character had already been introduced but this was a great true introduction to what is going on with this version of Alice so um I just felt it was extremely uh strong for an episode and just every little easter egg was so much fun because this is the first this is the first time they've actually done a true like quote-unquote holiday episode too like this is the first time I think the show has really firmly stuck a pin in when things are happening. Because, you know, it's like ambiguously fall of Vancouver, which is like all the seasons. You, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's like winter for like nine months of the season up there. Um, So it could kind of, things could kind of happen whenever. But this is like, no, this is on Halloween. This is, boom, there. And it really, that... I don't know what that's going to do for future plots or, like, even for us going back in the past. I don't want to get super technical and be like, well, actually, like, because of this, like, the timeline is completely wrong because, well, no, none of that. I just, I find it interesting that it's like, no, this is exactly when this is happening. And I, I, I want, I'm wondering if they're going to do more of that in the future or if that's going to affect uh, the way things kind of unfold now. Like, is there a time limit for some reason? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there pressure that we don't know about yet? Um, I just find it very interesting. Uh, the smallest thing that they've done differently, and I'm like, ooh, that's new. 
So. Well, it's not a hundred percent their first holiday episode. I think it's like their second one because they did the Valentine's Day episode in season one. Oh, that's true. Wow. Okay, but, forget everything I said. But no, but Ashley I mean, it's Ashley is wrong. It's still valid though because they haven't. They especially haven't done like a Halloween episode before. It's not really like Storybrooke ever celebrated Halloween. And the thing that I like about this episode too is the fact that since it's taking place in in the setting. Um, where it's taking place in this neighborhood where the cursed fairy tale characters are mixed in with, you know, people who have lived here their whole lives and, you know, just think of Disney characters as being from movies and fairy tale characters and things like that. We've got to see real world, you know, costumes um, in the background, which is something that you and I actually talked about privately, which is that a lot of times if you're watching something from, you know, a Halloween movie or a show or anything like that, a lot of times it's not in the budget to license, you know, well-known costumes like Power Rangers or Disney characters, Marvel, things like that, Star Wars. Um, you know, that's just not feasible. So you have the very generic mummy, witch, vampire, you know, pumpkin, candy corn, whatever kind of, you know, costumes <laughs> going on in the background. And since Disney owns everything now, it gave them the opportunity to showcase all of these costumes like when the incredibles were in mr clucks getting their dinner and and when lucy switched place with the little elsa um at the door to the you know to that house where they were trick-or-treating at um i appreciated that because it made it much more realistic because when you're walking around on halloween mm -hmm. like if you were walking around in seattle on halloween that is exactly what you would see so it did give it a more realistic vibe and as you kind of mentioned too, not wanting to go back to Storybrooke and along with Storybrooke, it had that whole s small town, you know, displaced from time scenario. Hyperion Heights is very much in modern day, um, which was again, really exemplified in the episode Greenbacks because there were apps and, you know, smartphones happening all over the place. So it's, that is something I just thought of. Yes. Um, so there's I don't a big difference It's just the fact that everyone had a flip phone in Storybrooke, and I just remember thinking that the first season, like, um, no. <laughs> it would have been even funnier if they'd had a brick phone, like Saved by the Bell style. That would have been so funny. <laughs> now that we've gotten over our kind of initial reviews and what we're going to say there, let's get on into the nitty-gritty in Chapter 2 of our podcast, which is our talking points. All right, so the first thing I want to get into with our discussion here is um, – the Rumbell flashback. Let's just get into it. Yes. Um, because that, there's so much going on there that I just, I need to get into. So the episode opens, right, with Storybrooke. It's Gideon's first birthday. Rumpel is taking pictures of Gideon using a Polaroid camera that Belle gave him, which was adorable. And she had the line that said, you're going to make me regret giving you that camera, which was super cute. Belle makes a note that Regina and Zelina are getting the balloons. Emma and Hook are getting cake. And Snow and Charming are bringing bubble wands because Gideon is in love with them. And she seems really stressed out about everything. But Rumpel assures her that as long as people show up and Gideon gets cake all over his face... It's going to be fine because it's still just a child's birthday party. And then they kind of reminisce and talk about the fact that it's been a very quiet year for Storybrooke. Gold can't even remember the last time he used the dagger. And it really is kind of setting up the fact that their happy endings were legit and they were earned. And, you know, that was kind of my first inkling of 
what they've said in interviews and things, you know, off screen, which is that they didn't want to undo the happy endings that were earned, you know, at the end of last season. Um, that made me very, very happy. Very, very happy. Oh, definitely. Because I, I didn't think that they were going to do anything to undo those happy endings, but I was very curious as to how Rumple was here and not Belle. And it was mm-hmm. kind of bothering me to wonder, like, is she alive? Is she not? What's the deal here? Et cetera, et cetera. And then to have that question answered so beautifully and so tragically at the same time. It, it was tragic, but it wasn't. And obviously we're, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But, oh, it was just so good. So then the main part of that story right after that is we cut to them later on. It's, you know, what, nine years later, I guess, because Gideon appears to be ten years old. And he is running over a bridge and his parents are meeting at the top and their image is reflected in the water and the bridge is reflected in the water. And Belle tells Rumpel that the bridge they're on is older than time itself. And people have come here for thousands of years to have their wishes granted. And Rumpel reveals that he's there to wish for a singular, natural life with Belle. And he drops the dagger into the water. But it reappears in his boot because you just can't be rid of it that easily. And Belle assures Rumpel that we'll find a way to get rid of the dagger. Without him dying. (laughs) And all she really wants is a life with him. You know, Mm -hmm. together. And that's all she really wants. Now, a quick note on this reflection here, okay? The bridge with the bridge reflected underneath. Bridge like a bridge over troubled water. There was that. But also, it looks like an eye. Like an eyeball. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The way hey. that Rumpel was sitting there staring at her while she was talking about everything, he was looking at her with such a, a gaze of love. Uh, just a quick little thing. I just wanted to point that out, Ashley. I didn't know if you had caught any of that or not, but I was totally into the symbolism there. Well, I definitely noted I, the fact that the bridge became a circle, you know, is kind of like obviously represents like it reminds me of a ring which represents their commitment to each other but also like kind of their story coming full circle because uh rumple had said at gideon's first birthday like oh you know you want to travel the world and see everything so now we're going to do that so after all of like all of the everything that they've gone through in their story it's kind of come full circle and they're kind of they're not who they were before, but they're kind of where they were before in that, like, everything kind of took a detour to bring them back to where they were, and now they're they're going forward with everything. And I, I really, I like that. And yeah, it looked gorgeous. Good Lord. I also want to mention something we had uh, touched on um, when we mentioned Gideon's birthday was, you know, the there was a me- obviously setting the scene and, like, giving us the vibe of Storybrooke being, like, super chilled out. But also, you know, we got to mention Zelina there, and we know that she is going to be showing back up in this season now. So I thought that was just like, okay, yes, refreshing the the Wicked Witch in our minds. So it was just nice to hear like her name being mentioned again. It's like, oh yeah, her. But um, no, back to the what's happened there. Also, it is it it, it should be noted that while Belle herself doesn't look significantly older, like she's starting to go a little gray, and that's kind of you know. 
a signal to the audience that Rumpel looking exactly the same, but Bell's starting to age, like that brings almost an urgency to what he wanted to do with the dagger and get rid of it so he could be mortal and um, uh, basically live out his, his days with her. Yeah, that was really, really like... You're right about the fact that when she was going gray, it added more of a sense of urgency to what he wanted to do because he's watching her age. He's watching her mortality take effect. He's, you know, that's it's happening literally before his eyes. And if he doesn't hurry and get rid of the dagger, then she's going to grow old without him and it'll all have been for nothing. Like, so, yeah, that was inc just incredibly, incredibly tragic. It was just so super sad. But then the next thing that happens after that in their story, right, is that Belle is telling him that he could just take a, their, you know, it's years later again, they're in a castle. And she's telling Rumpel that he could just take a photo of her instead of staring at her. But he says no, because he could remember how she looks in that moment forever, which is so sweet. And then Gideon comes in with books and Rumpel asks, you know. Grown Gideon. Grown, grown up Gideon. Gideon. At that, yes comes in and Rumpel asks why he needs so many books and Gideon reveals that he has been admitted into El Fame Academy which starts in two weeks I love the fact that you that Belle like did this little dance up and down in her chair and she squeaks a little bit and she's so excited for him that was just such a cute little moment I'm super into that obviously his parents are proud Rumpel is also sad though because he thinks that Gideon is leaving them too soon he apologizes to Belle for spending all their years trying to break the damn dagger curse instead of raising their boy. But Belle assures him that they did raise him for 18 years, and now it's time for him to go off and choose his own adventure. He is ready. But Rumpel is not. So Belle shows him a fairy prophecy about the Dark One that says, quote, when the Dark One, when the Dark One finds eternal love at the sun's brightest set where time stops... The path will appear where the darkness shall rest. And Rumpel realizes that it's the edge of realms. And Belle says, perfect. We'll go together. So they're going to go together. Together. The age of realms. Rumpel will go together. Together. <laughs> and now the golds are at the edge of realms, waiting for the sun to set. And Rumpel explains that they're on the outermost edge of existence there, where rules of time and space don't apply to us here. And eternity can be a blink of an eye back home, but it can just be years to them before the sun actually sets. And Belle tells him that we'll wait, because what better place to build our home than on an eternal summer day with a rose garden and a cozy nook to read in? So he takes out the dagger to create one of those lovely homes, but she stops him, saying that they came there to get rid of the dagger. And she wants to build their home with their own two hands. And thus begins the heartbreaking homage montage to Up, wherein we see them build their house and put up photos and chip, and they decorate, and it's fucking adorable. He puts the dagger away, they picnic and wait for the sunset, you cry, they read, he laughs, you feels, you cries. Belle keeps getting old as Gideon comes to visit off and on. As the music plays and breaks your fucking heart. And then we get them dancing to tale as old as time 
because Leah Fong and Dana Horgan give no fucks about your feelings and, in fact, want you to experience the feels. And then, finally, just as she did when he first fell in love with her, Belle climbs up on the step to open the drapes and let in the light when suddenly there is a problem and she falls back into her husband's arms and by now you're using your remote as Kleenex because you've emptied the entire box watching the montage and you've got nothing left to assuage the tears that are Niagara Fallsing down your face girl this montage fucking killed me it really did like at first i was like this is so sweet this is so sweet it's such a cute little montage to up oh and then they actually showed the house and the house looks just like it too and the music sounds like up and oh my god this is an adorable montage to up and look she's getting older and this is so sweet and then suddenly she falls backwards and i'm thinking to myself oh my god it's a fucking montage to up (laughs) no it's like no reverse. That's exactly reverse, what it was. Reverse. Even well, even with her being like you know old lady Belle, I was just like when she goes to open the drapes, like oh it's 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 going full circle. It's a beautiful thing, and then it was like exactly dun, dun, that dun. full circle moment, right? And and I was like, oh crap! Like literally went oh crap sitting on my couch. But and it's so funny because I mean like I you know I had. I have my problems with Rumbell and I had my things I liked about Rumbell, but they never were like my, well, I don't want to say my focus when I watched Once Upon a Time, but I was never like, oh, Rumbell, yes, Rumbell. Like, I was not like super hardcore plugged into it or dialed into it. So the fact that this montage like made me feel things like this entire episode, I was just like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, there were some serious feels going on. And, uh, it was just so, it was so good. Cause the thing about that montage, right. And showing their lives together, like we, I've seen interviews with Adam and Eddie before where they talked about the fact that, you know, in, in giving the happy ending, you know, so many times over the past couple of seasons, I mean, even I would see this kind of thing happening online where, you know, either fans of the show or, or fans of their relationship in general would, want to get exactly this they wanted to see them just living their lives together they wanted to just basically have like a day in the life kind of episode and that kind of thing just doesn't provide the drama you know what i mean like there there is no drama in bliss so right it doesn't make for good television that way so really the only thing that you can do and this is kind of getting into what happened next because then bell fucking died but um, the only thing that they really could do to create the drama that was needed there was to kill her and separate them that way. And to allow us to see them getting older together, to allow us to see Belle getting older. They showed us their life together. They really did. They showed us their happy ending. They showed their life together, them getting older. And they showed that, you know, I mean, probably my favorite scene of that whole little montage is when they were reading Yes, and he looks yes. at her, and she looks at him, and the music goes along with it, and they smile and laugh. And that was probably that was really my favorite little part of that montage, because that's very much a day in the life of. Um, and it was it was just so sweet, and 
Well, and I think it's interesting that you use the the phrase and th they had to kill her. Like, she wasn't killed in, like, a way that, like, a lot of characters, like, okay, we need drama, so we're going to kill off somebody's partner. Right. In, like, uh, actively killing, like, Right. This is this isn't bury your gaze. That is life. This isn't bury your gaze. Right. Like that's life. That happens, and that's the unfortunate circumstance of their situation with him being the dark one. And so then, when we come back from commercial, and Belle is sitting there dying, Rumpel wants to use the dagger to make her young again, but she says no, and she reveals that years ago, when she found the fairy prophecy, she realized that the sun that had to set. To show him the path was hers. She has to die in order for him to find his way out of the darkness, and he has to have faith that their love is powerful enough to outlast death. Only then can we be together. And he asked how she could have kept that from him, and I was thinking the same thing, and she tells him that she wanted to live their lives without him always searching for an answer. And they did that. They, li they mm -hmm. lived their lives together, and now it's time for him to let her go. And he says that he can't because he's afraid, because of course he is. And she tells <laughs> him a story. Oh, my God. This is what I lost my bananas. This, this, this. And I have to say, Emily DeRobin plays an amazing old lady. Like, even the, the makeup was spot on, but, like, also how she sold it with her body language and her voice. Like, I didn't feel like I was watching someone in old made up old made up to be old i was watching an old woman like she really nailed it with this but as soon as she goes once upon a time i was like oh, 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 no. yeah and then what happens after what happened after she says that that was just like okay mean but yeah you you could you could talk about that yeah like, let's get into that and it's funny that you say that too because um in terms of her body language, when I, if you if you saying that that mean the thing about the body language because I actually noticed that too. Especially there's a shot where when she's super old, he's helping her into that chair outside, mm -hmm. and she like she looks up at him a couple of times, and the way that she moved was like I've seen old ladies in retirement homes move like that before. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen that movement in that body language, so that's what really kind of kind of stuck with me there. And then, yeah, she says, once upon a time, there was a beast who took a girl prisoner. But he fell in love with her. And then he let her go. And that is when the girl realized she loved him, too. And the whole time they're showing the fucking montage of their entire relationship. They're showing that clips was, from oh. Skin Deep, the motherfuckers. Like they're sitting, and then like other things, like just like all like the goodies, and I just remember being like you, and that was one of the moments when I was like, okay, acceptable to revisit the past, but really now? No, I was. That's one of those moments where I was like, you fucking assholes, because I was feeling so many things, like thinking about their relationship, thinking about like the past six years of the show, mm -hmm. remembering all those great scenes that we have talked about on this podcast. One of my favorites of which being in season four when she banished him from the town line um, at the end of the Frozen story. Like, that was just incredible. I mean, having that whole montage go through, showing their wedding, showing everything. And then when she said, you know, that he thought he would never see her again. But in the end, 
she came back to him more than a few times. Oh, <laughs> exactly. My God. And then he says he remembers that story and he let her go once before and they found their way back to each other. You're a good man, Rumple. Your heart <laughs> is pure. You will find the answer to get rid of the dagger. And you will find your way back to me again. I promise. Well, Rumple's crushed, you're crushed, I'm crushed, all the cans are crushed, your soul has nothing, and somewhere Dana Horgan and Leah Fong are <coughs> clinking champagne flutes and toasting to their victory. Honestly, like, of all the endings, happy or otherwise, that, like, couples or characters, whomever, have gotten on the show, this is the best one. This is the, this was, as it sad was. as it was, it was also super satisfying, so no one can complain, because honestly, this ship got the best ending so far. Just putting it out there. You're totally right. And what's funny, too, and I think I've said this to you privately, is originally when I was watching this whole little montage, I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, I hope they do this for everybody. I hope Snowing gets a montage like this. And then Belle died at the end, and I was like, no, no, no. Please don't do this for anybody else. Please <laughs> only do this for Rumbell. I don't need this to happen for anyone else. Please. Oh, my God, please. No, 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 no. I can't relive this, like, 17 more times. No, please, yeah, no. I can't do it, especially not for Snowing. Like, that would be too much. I, I wouldn't be able to. Like. Like, I, I can't. So you know they would die on the same day. They would like literally lie well, yeah, down. Yeah, because they like, share a heart. Bed. So if one of them dies, the other one goes too, and they would die in their and it would be oh god, I can't. Okay. They would get into their 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 fairy tale bed, and they would kind of like look around and smile, and they would be lying side by side, facing each other, smiling, and close their eyes, and it would fade out to like the starry sky outside, and then you'd know that they had passed, and like a shooting star goes across the sky, and it's like well. And the end on Snow and Charming, and then you just, you die because, ugh, my heart. So the next thing they show after that is Rumple and Gideon burying Belle under a grave marker, which not only has a rose on it, which, has aw, all the roses on it, but her name is in yellow, which, double aw. And then the so, the sweet thing, Gideon wants to take the dagger for himself so that Rumpel can reunite with Belle, but Rumpel says no because he has to get the dagger to somebody else, a guardian, whoever they are. And when he does so, the darkness will finally rest, even if the guardian doesn't know it yet. And then he takes a portal to the alternate realm, where Alice runs into him. As she's chasing a white rabbit. And she's upset with him for interrupting her chase and then asks who she is, or who he is, rather. And he says that that doesn't matter. Just as Henry rides by on his motorcycle. She says the strangers that are there for the ball keep getting stranger and stranger. And asks if he's there for the ball. And he says no. And she says the prince is looking for a bride if the shoe fits. And then says, are you, uh, looking for a prince? <laughs> He says no, dearie, and explains that he's looking for someone much more important. And she tells him she likes a good puzzle. Her name is Alice. Okay. So now that we're past the the death of... Well, of... well there was one thing that happened at the funeral, and I'm surprised you did... Or you of all people didn't mention it, is that part of when Gideon, Gideon was like, I, I, let me take the dagger so you can reunite with mom... He's like, well, you know, I've already lost one son to this and, and that, whatever. And I'm, I'm just so glad. Like, I know 
obviously like with Gideon a lot of focus has been on him particularly in the, in the in the later seasons but I am always very glad that they have not completely forgotten Balefire you know the reason for the season if you will so like he his being mentioned again is always like I always appreciate that really the reason for the show if you want to get technical but that well that's what I meant reason for the aside. season um yeah I didn't mention it um I was close to getting there but i wasn't quite there yet um no it's fine now that we've gotten past the whole death of bell thing we can get into the other part of the episode that i need to talk about with you which is tilly and weaver yes okay so first of all i am so glad that you have finally come around to tilly Mm-hmm. because i was sold on her from the get-go and you were as you said you were a little bit more hesitant well she just so. didn't they didn't really put her best face for i get that she was supposed to be antagonistic but it, she was it, she was not as i couldn't feel the layers when she was first introduced so i was not like i was like all right you know what enough of you um, if they had given her a bit more of what they gave her in this episode when they introduced her, I feel like I would have, uh, appreciated more. And honestly, let's be serious, there is also another factor to why I am more on Team Tilly. Would you like <laughs> to bring up why that is? Yes, I would, because you know, like, somewhere, someday, not today, but someday I will own a t-shirt that says Fairy Tale Lesbians on it. And it just has a picture of Mulan, <laughs> Dorothy, Ruby, Tilly, and to be determined on there. But it's the fact that, it's the fact that just casually, she was like, oh yeah, I had an ex-girlfriend that worked for Victoria Belfry and that did not go well and blah, blah, blah. Boom, that's it. That's all you had to do. And that's like doing it right. That's like, that's, and, and that's one of the things that we've, we've mentioned on this podcast more than once is that like, not having a gay character, but having a character who happens to be gay. And I appreciate that so much. And it's also very funny that they kind of like, I guess reinforce it when it, we had just mentioned when she encounters Rumpel in the alternate forest, uh, be like, Hey, you're looking for a prince. Just kind of like, like do, 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 Gator scanning, scanning, <laughs> like just, just <laughs> very, very appreciative of that. And like, you know, just how her, it's just her character. There's the subtlety there, the subtlety of that part of her. And then obviously so many other things about her in this episode and there's such a funny Easter egg. I have to mention it because, like, I am we'll, sure... We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get to that mm, part. It, it, when, I, when I talk no, about it, you'll no, see it, why I'm, I'm super excited. Literally, give me... Give me it's, I, I need three sentences. <laughs> give me three sentences. No, I know. All I'm saying is it makes me happy. I know. So the opening of their whole story is Tilly is in Hyperion Heights wearing a white rabbit mask, which I loved. She's trying to solve a Rubik's Cube, which is mostly black except for a couple of pieces. And Weaver walks over with an orange marmalade sandwich, her favorite. <laughs> he wants to discuss business with her after she eats her sandwich, but first she asks if it's for if the business is for Victoria, and that's when she mentions she had an ex-girlfriend who used to work for her, as she said. He asks why she's working on a Rubik's Cube, because what's the point of an unsolvable puzzle? To which she replies, what's the point of a solvable one? Which, I loved that. That's such an Alice in Wonderland line. Um, I just, I loved it. 
and also just really quickly too there was for sure a coronation elsa who walked by in the background at that point i think it was a guy but i can't tell either way haha -ha. <laughs> rumple tells her to take off the mask and she said well we're all wearing masks even him and she would much prefer to see the man behind his mask but then he leaps so later vic gets in her car tilly jumps out from the back seat scares <laughs> the crap out of vic Vic asks how Tilly got in her car. Tilly says she's more interested in how she and everyone else got to Hyperion Heights. And then she says, who are you? Which yes. is right out of the animated Alice in Wonderland. And then Vic maces her. She runs out of the car and Vic keeps her bag. She summons Weaver to her office to ask why she was accosted by one of his little street rats. Ha ha. Before <laughs> pulling out a bottle of pills. She called in this... Tilly is insane and she needs them to stay sane. So she needs to be on them. She says that maybe Weaver isn't the man she thought he was and he says maybe he's not. And Weaver refuses to drug Tilly again but then Vic reveals that she's been recording their conversations and she's got blackmail. So he's left with little choice to try and get Tilly to take pills. You know, I just want to point out really quickly. Um, it's an interesting bit of social commentary there talking about a a bitchy real estate developer who lives at the top of their tower who pretends to record conversations try to try and blackmail people mm -hmm. i have never ever heard about that happening at all in any modern day situation absolutely not it's it's only it, it's hard it's unbelievable that oh, it could absolutely. be a thing in real oh, life yes. what absolutely mm. so then later weaver approaches tilly at the troll under the bridge P.S. By the way, a girl in an Alice in Wonderland costume walks by twice. She's on frame. And he prods her for playing with the Rubik's Cube, but she throws the solved puzzle box at him, and he tells her that she's confused about how it works. She says she finally understands the full picture. She just had to see it. She has a story. This troll has a story. They all have a story, even him, Mr. Waver. And it's a thing of beauty. Hmm. <clears throat> dun dun dun. He asks if she saw anything with Belfry, and she says that she sees everything now because she's ten feet tall. She tells him she stopped taking the pills because Belfry wants to make her small again, wants to make her blind, and she can't do that when she's so close to remembering how to make him say again. He's confused and asks what she knows about Belfry, and she tells him that the answer's in the puzzle. They're all pieces of the same puzzle, but without each other, it's impossible to see the big picture. That's why Belfry scattered them. She made them one mask so they can't recognize each other. But soon the mask will come off and soon he'll see who he is. The good man behind the cop. Oh wait. Is it behind the beast? Dun 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 dun! He tells her it's obvious she knows something that makes Belfry nervous and he needs to know what it is. And if he believes her, she'd rather show him. Lots of emphasis on showing versus telling. Mm-hmm. Which I appreciate. We had a conversation about that once on this podcast. Mm, definitely. I that that is a big sticking point for me, so I'm sure I've brought it up multiple times and like I and obviously like, you know, that's writing one oh one, show don't tell, but like I love the fact that in her way that she's dancing around things and with her, her Alice metaphors of feeling small and being ten feet tall, like and dropping all of the hints ever She's she still wants to instead of be like, hey, listen, yo, you is Rumpelstiltskin. She wants to like 
show him she wants to like she because I think she knows that just telling isn't effective so showing is important and showing is what the thing that's going to make you make it personal it's gonna it's gonna make you form your own opinions and put your own emotions into it and you know and that obviously when you're uh, unfurling a good story that's the same thing you show a scene and you you feel the emotions along with the characters instead of hey a thing happened right so well to a degree i feel like i'm getting my own comeuppance here because a conversation we had on this podcast before is i remember having a long diatribe about how i wanted to let the show slow down for a second and let the characters tell us how they feel about everything going on. <laughs> Instead of having them go from reaction to reaction, I wanted them to slow down. I think it was in season four, actually, when when Regina and Belle, or when Regina and Snow were talking about Robin and everything. Yeah. And the conversation about the quarter and the hope jar and all that kind of stuff. Like, I, I feel mm-hmm. like that's when we were talking about it. So I'm kind of like, well, they're busting my balls aren't they like and now they're showing everything and, pr- and proving that i really don't know shit about shit about screenwriting i still have a lot to learn um so then at that point weaver and tilly are driving when tilly takes a bite of her sandwich it looks like she's an orange marmalade girl after all ashley tell us <laughs> is she an orange marmalade girl <laughs> okay this is the best thing in the world and please please tweet me if you got this as well so we can be friends five ever but so the actress uh, Rose Reynolds, who plays Tilly, her first um, credited role on IMDb is in The World's End, and there's a whole thing in the world. The World's End is one of the um, it's part of the Cornetto's trilogy. That's Shaun of the Dead, uh, Hot Fuzz, which is the best movie ever, and The World's End. So it's it's uh, Edgar Wright, and so it's very like kind of not goofy dialogue but it is he also did scott pilgrim so just kind of think about that directorially um and he also kind of made get, baby driver yes he did baby driver that's his newest so like just think about how he tells a story and like the dialogue and everything so one of the the thing about the world's end is kind of you know making amends with your past and one of the things of the past that these characters had was a nickname for a trio of girls that were all together it was uh, two blondes on either side and a ginger in the middle, and they called it the marmalade sandwich. And the grown-up version of one of the blondes in the marmalade sandwich is Rose Reynolds. So when you're like, marmalade, it's your favorite, you're a marmalade sandwich girl, I had to pause the episode, double-check IMDb, and then call Zach twice and be like, no, but you don't understand. This is the best Easter egg I have ever heard. This is almost as good as Lee in season one with Parlay. Like, this is... It made my week to, to see that. So if you caught that too, please tweet me. Like, because yes. But anyway, that's why I was, like, so excited about it, because it's just something that, like, I want to know who decided to put that in there, like, if it was the writers or collaboration with the actress or whatever, but, like, that kind of thing is so appreciated, because it's such, like, an inside-inside joke, but if you get it, it's like, oh, yes! So anyway, yeah, that's why I was, like, super-duper excited. I also want to just, really quick, because we were talking about, like, the pills and everything, uh, and, and being 10 feet tall and how 
before um, when we had our interview with Adam and Eddie, and we talked kind of how this version of Alice was like the Jefferson uh, airplane version. So all this talk about pills definitely put me in the mind of one pill makes you larger and, and one, one pill, pill makes, makes you, you small. And the ones like, that mother gives you don't do anything at, at all. all. Go ask Alice. Alice. Who's ten feet tall? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So that I just I I like how that is very much a thing because she is very different than the Alice that we saw in uh, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and I'm okay with that. Me too. And like this is this is you know when when in the very beginning of the season when um, Henry was talking about well there's all these different versions and this that and the next. This is like I feel like I don't want to say quote unquote the right way, but this is like the my this is my favorite way of them kind of showing different versions of people without being like I don't know like I, I can't articulate the best way of describing it is just like they're different versions in non um not on the surface like yeah they look different. But it's just, it's not just how they act, it's where they come from. So I really, I really, that, that, that I think too is what's making me enjoy Tilly. Anyway. Yeah, she is, she is definitely, she's possibly my favorite new character on the show. In fact, I think she is my favorite new character on the show. Well, and she's just knocks it out of the park with every scene in this episode with, with, the kind of on the tro troll bridge where she's very manic. And then in a later scene, we were going to talk about, um, as well, just, she brought her a, obviously her a acting game to the table with this. And this, I think, uh, solidified like, all right, we want to see more of this character because there's a lot there. There's the, there are the layers. There's a lot going on here. There it is. Give us more. And speaking of more to give her, Let's get into that discussion because Alice is gay, mm -hmm. which they did kind of hint at that the one of, when I say they, Adam and Eddie, they told us in our interview from our first, second episode of the season that we were going to meet one of the two people in the LGBT storyline in episode four. We thought it was Alice. It is. I'm happy. Um, so I really want to get into that because there was actually an interview that came out on TV line that the guys gave um, to Matt Medovich. So I want to make sure that we go over some of this stuff here. I'm going to just read a little bit of this verbatim. So here we go. Um, Tilly, a.k.a. the Hyperion Heights persona of Alice in Wonderland and other places, is gay. Having once had a girlfriend who toiled for Victoria Belfry, that personal detail, however, would wind up paling in comparison to the reveal that Tilly went off her meds can see through the curse. By episode's end, she would be back on her meds and asleep. Now, why did Tilly and Alice achieve clarity in the first place? Now, here's interesting. Quote, we're going to get a little more into that in the winter finale, episode 10. Wait, what? Episode 10 is the finale. Really? Not 11. So Secret Garden is actually the premiere. Huh. Oh. oh. 
So anyways, um, we're going to get into much more detail about Dil Tilly in the second half of the season, including her flashbacks, a big arc for her, and an epic love story we're excited about. Mm -hmm. And whereas the aforementioned Ruby Slippers epiphany and lip block seem to seem more like fulfillment, mere fulfillment of a promise, Tilly's love story will have greater stakes. It's hard to explain without telling you too much, Adam said, but I'll say this, the romance becomes really entwined in the larger story we're telling for this season. It's important on both the character level for someone who's in love and dealing with love and on a larger plot level for the show. <laughs> now there's that. Yes. Now, here's also interesting bit of news, which may have nothing to do with it or something to do with it. Everything to do with it. TV line also let us know that Tira Scovby, Scovby, I'm so sorry for saying your name wrong. Cause I'm sure I did who recurs on Riverdale as Betty Cooper's sister, Polly is now set to appear as Robin, Zelina's grown up daughter with Robin Hood debuting in the 10th episode of season seven. Her character mm -hmm. is described as a strong willed good girl turned rebel who is struggling to define her identity as the daughter of powerful mm -hmm. parents. She can never seem to escape their shadows, which drives her crazy. Tired of towing the line, Robin is ready to break out into the world and find her own adventure. And as first reported by TV line, Robin will also prove to be a love interest for somebody. Eyeball. I am the eyeball emoji right now. Like, do, 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 do. So pretty much Alice and Robin are going to be the gay couple, right? Yay. Yay. Um, that's pretty much what we are assuming. I'm here for it. I'm into it. I'm happy with the fact that Rebecca Mater gets to play the mom to a lesbian. That just tickles my fancy. Ashley, I'm sure it does more for you. I'm picturing the dialogue and everything. Like, is it like, oh, good God. Imagine when Robin brings Alice, we'll call her Alice, Alice home. And she has to meet Zelina for the first time. Just, just picture that in your brains, audience. Picture that in your brains, Zach. Like, oh, I'm, I'm picturing it. Uh, I am. So I'm picturing it, Sophia. Like, <laughs> well, and especially since Zelina is such like a hardcore like mom with a capital M too. Like, we saw that because I actually just recently rewatched Ruby Slippers, and you know that's a lot of like mom Zelina there in the underworld and. She's so, so protective of her daughter that, like, seeing, obviously, we could see why she would be grown and rebel and, and things of that nature. But then, like, just having this other aspect, because obviously, you know, Tilly does what Tilly wants. So, like, just, there's going to be a clash and it's going to be fun and they're, they're both going to, oh, the, there's going to be, like, you United Kingdom sass and, oh, my God, I am so here for that. Please, yes, now. <laughs> Can it be the 10th episode? Yes, the 10th episode, which is serving as the finale. So, there's that. Which, just to revisit that, by the way, just to revisit that really quickly. Because why not? Maybe. <laughs> um, episode 10. Oh, Lord. Episode 10 is the 8th witch. <gasps> oh, Ashley just got so happy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you are happy as a clam right now. Okay. 
I I am. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, I think that this is great. I'm really excited about this. I am so stoked. Now, um, there is actually another bit of casting news, too, that I want to get into because people are speculating over who this is going to be. I know you have an idea. I do have an idea. So, And it actually relates to the final scene from The Garden of Forking Paths, which we also still have not talked about yet. And we'll probably talk about it more when we get into our discussion about greenbacks. Um, mm -hmm. So actually, you know what? I will save that for that discussion. But overall, I'm really excited about the gays. I'm excited that Zelina gets to be, like, a, she gets to be a P-flag mom. That's great. Um, I just, this is just, this is just one of the best things ever. So, um, going back to Tilly, though, because this is super important. There, her part of the story is incredibly important because it's clear that, to me at least, it seems like she is the guardian that Rumpel was talking about. Um, mm -hmm. After she opened her sandwich to find the blue pills, she feels betrayed, asking Weaver if he ever really believed her, and he tells her that she needs her pills, and she tells him that no one ever listens. Those pills make her foggy, and that's what Victoria wants. And then she says something interesting. She says, everyone always takes everything away from her. Put a pin in that. We're coming back to it. Mm -hmm. She also says mm -hmm. she never thought he'd do the same thing. He tells her he's not the man she thinks he is. She tells him he's a good man with a pure heart, and as soon as he remembers that, he realized that he's not alone at all. He's got someone who loves him waiting for him. He wishes she was right. She tells him it's because he doesn't remember. He can, though, if they go somewhere before the pills make her small again, but they have to go now. And she throws the car into neutral, falls out, and then he chases after her. Tilly leads Weaver to her home, which is inside an abandoned storage container, which also, P.S., by the way, has the Cheshire Cat's face painted on the inside. He calls her Tilly, and she questions who Tilly is because the pills are blurring her reality. She says, I'm sorry, I'm not myself. She's so close to getting him to remember. She just needs to find something. He's so close to being himself, too. So then he asks, who the hell is he? And she says, that's the greatest puzzle of all. And that mm -hmm. this will help him remember. And she holds up Chip. And it clearly does have an effect on him. Because that's when we go back to Belle's death scene, which is just totally tragic. And then we go back to Hyperion Heights. And he's looking at the cup and he says, it's just a cup. <laughs> which is what Belle said. And I'm just like, oh, yep. why? And she says that they knew each other before in the other place, but he had a different name. What was it? Sheepshanks? Spindleshanks? He says she's gone mad. And she says, we've all mad here. Yes. Which I love that. And then she pulled out his gun. She refused to put it down. He asked why she's doing it. She says, because he told you told me to. Rumpelstiltskin. And then she sh she and gone. then she really shot him. She shot him good. She shot him good. Like, there was a lot of blood. I there was like, was. Uh, uh oh. Which we have discussed is how the show needs an edge. It needs more blood, and now we got it. Blood. She also dropped Chip too and broke him. But um. That poor cup. That cup has been broken like a zillion times. I mean, like Grant, it's the seriously. thing that will never die. But also like, oh no, why? Seriously. Now here's another thing, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I was really, this episode really kind of drove this home for me. And we, I should have brought it up when we were talking about Alice just a second ago when she's like the Jefferson Airplane version of Alice. She's like a combination of Alice and the Mad Hatter. Definitely. I really like, like she's that. She's the Alice, like the, um, oh, what the heck? Who, who did that one video game, the PC game, uh, 
with like the really dark and twisty Alice. Like that's what she reminds me of. Like where she, you know, Wonderland had an effect on her type of Alice. You know, it's like right. we're all mad here. It's like no, but really. No, yeah, but really, they're you're fucking nuts. So, yeah, there's that. Um, and then at the hospital, right? When we come back, Rumple's in a hospital bed with flowy white curtains. He can see Belle's face in front of him. There's stuff floating in the air. It's clearly an afterlife. She's about to kiss him. When suddenly he awakens <laughs> to find Rogers in front of him, holding the bullet that shot him. Rogers tells Weaver he should be dead. He must be immortal. Uh. Rumpel asks where Tilly is. Rumpel says she took her bills and she's quiet as a dormouse. Uh. Remember what the dormouse said. Feed your head. Okay. And then Weaver mm. insists that Rogers has to free Tilly and come up with a fake report for what happened. Rogers leaves and goes outside to find Tilly next to a chessboard. He explains that she's free to go. He sits down to play a game of chess with her. And there's a close-up because he moves the black rook, which is next to the white knight. And the note that I have written here says the Les is the pirate's daughter. <laughs> because she is. Sorry, I don't make the rules. It's just a thing. It's just a thing. Like, the lesbian is the pirate's daughter. Um... <laughs> And I find that really interesting. And so that brings us to an Entertainment Weekly article because Natalie Abrams talked to Colin O'Donohue and Rose Reynolds about this very thing, asking about this. And Colin said, quote, Obviously we know of Hook in this thing of playing chess with his daughter and how that was an important thing in their relationship. And we can see that with Tilly and Hyperion Heights, chess is a very aspe important aspect of her life for her. He also teased that Rogers will soon enlist Tilly's help in tracking down a missing girl whose case has plagued him, and who viewers know is likely his daughter. Rogers works with Tilly in some respects to figure out who this missing girl is. That's when you begin to see an inkling of the fact that could be who she is, but we don't know at the moment if that's the case or not. Mm-hmm. Though it seems clear there is some type of connection between them, it was Rumple and not Hook that Tilly chose to try away from the curse. Now, the exact reasoning for that will be explored in the winter finale, but viewers did see Rumple meet Alice for the first time, Shortly after, why are there pages? Why is why is that happening? Entertainment Weekly, shut up. Um, she wants to wake up the whole of Hyperion Heights. She wants to scream with them, so it's not a gold in particular kind of thing. She just has a connection with him. But I think once her eyes have been opened, she's awake. She wants to wake everybody up because she knows that the person who is the evil figure is Victoria, and I think she doesn't like her very much. Now Rose Reynolds said that she doesn't really know who she's connected to in a family tree kind of way and she wouldn't be able to tell her at this <laughs> stage even if she did but there is something going on between her and gold okay so all of this together right is just good stuff it's all good stuff it's but and it makes it makes sense though too because obviously there is a huge chess motif with alice you know alice through the looking glass it was like a huge like they even put the chess moves that alice makes to get to the end of the board in the book so it's a thing this isn't i i like that is this isn't like poofing out of thin air like it's a right. thing right it's and it's been a thing so i'm happy about that as well that it's not just totally random mm -hmm. so those are the main that's the major stuff that was kind of happening with tilly and that story now there is a whole other story that was going on here which is the 
kind of the C story, if you will, the trick-or-treating aspect between Ivy having to take Lucy out trick-or-treating, and then she loses Lucy, and then she tries to get Henry to help her find her, and there's that whole thing, and it basically becomes a situation where it seems really clear, at least to the obvious, or to the audience, and to Ronnie, but not to Henry, that Ivy wants to go to the mill, and, um... <laughs> no. No, Henry. Danger, Will Robinson. Reverse course, abort mission, no. That legitimately, like, when they had that little shot of her having her drink and at the bar, I was just like, no. Oh, God, no. 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 No, not no. allowed. Veto. Yeah, it's like that episode of Friends when Ross and Rachel are watching their sex tape act, and I'm like, oh, God, no. Oh, God, make it stop. Oh, no. Oh, no, make it stop. Oh, God. It was, it was definitely that kind of situation. Um, it wasn't very good. D just, d d no, don't. Um, don't even don't, go there. Just don't even do it. This story is where, like, the Halloween stuff was coming into play more. This is where mm. we were seeing all the characters in the background that I was talking about earlier. There's also a moment, I just have to say, in the scene at the end when they're in... Well, okay, well, first of all, first of all, let me also just say this, because if I don't, then I'm going to kick my own ass. When we see Ronnie dressed for Halloween, first of all, she's Marilyn Monroe, or a 50s diner girl, whatever. I wasn't getting full Marilyn out of that. No. She, like she gave Henry a drink thing. called a poison apple, which is scotch, schnapps, and dry ice. He recommends a bit of cinnamon. Sounds gross, actually. And then right after that, we get a wide shot of Ronnie's bar. And I just have to tell you all, it's decorated to look like the Evil Queen's lair from the animated movie. There's a raven there. There's cobwebs. There's like a like there's a skull. The whole thing. There's like chemistry stuff looking like going on. It's I I swear to you, it is supposed to be an homage to the animated movie. At me on it, I'll argue. Like it's fine. <laughs> but I know that that's what that was supposed to be. Also, she had a line where she tells him to put on a mask and pretend he is ready to move on because moving forward doesn't mean we forget the dead. And if you love once, then you owe it to yourself to try and find happiness again. Speaking for herself as much as she is for Henry. Mm. And also at, this, at the, the end scene when Ivy and Henry meet for their drinks, they're at the bar and you can only actually see two of them. So you may not have noticed them, but the Sanderson sisters are sitting there. Which was my favorite Easter egg of this entire episode. I missed it the first time I watched it. I have to go back and like look for them, because I, com I completely missed that. Yeah, it was good. So, <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty good stuff. So that was pretty much everything going on in the episode. We get a, we get a hint of like Ivy's like about face, but obviously when we talk about greenbacks, we'll have more to say on that. Yeah, we are going to have more to say about that. Also, too, the one thing that we didn't mention is that in the hospital room at the end of this episode, Rumple proves he's awake. In the best way possible, because they haven't been spamming us with Deary's. He said right. it once in, in when he arrived to uh, the alternate forest to um, uh, Alice. It's kind of I think that was kind of like a reminder, like, oh, yeah, that's the thing he says. Um, and then he, he, I don't remember the line he says before it to Victoria Belfry, because of course she comes in and is like, I'm meddling, ha, huh, evil. Um, but he's like, blah, 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 dearie. And 
it's interesting because that doesn't mean anything to Victoria Belfry because exactly. she has absolutely no visible reality. Like, seasons one through, like, six, it would have been, like, hearing that would have been, like, a dun-dun-dun moment. And fear would be in whatever character's eyes was at the receiving end of that dearie. But Victoria's like, oh, okay, whatever, I'm off to be evil. Um, and it's just, it, 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 it's, that's very interesting because there are, as we're finding so many people that are awake, but no one knows who's awake and who's not. So everyone's kind of like operating on like, I don't know that you know that she knows, you know, so everyone's kind of doing well, their own how? thing. Hmm? Oh, and, and how are they awake? Well, that's the other part of it, but it's just so interesting that, like, you have a bunch of different characters who are awake now, and they're all kind of doing their own thing now. So they're all, I guess, sort of working towards the same goal, but they don't have allies, even though they do have allies. So it's going to be very interesting when people realize, oh, you're awake as well, but how are we going to keep this on the DL? It's kind of like... um what it well it, it's it, like what they did with season one where no one was awake and everyone kind of woke up at the same time this gradual like waking up kind of it, like I think I had said like a million times before that had they not ended the curse in uh the end of season one I would have liked to see a season very similar to season one in Storybrooke with Emma being awake but kind of having to keep it like right on the too. QT yeah and I think that's kind of what we're getting here. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. I'm interested to see at what point this is going to affect Henry, too. Um, especially with what is coming in the upcoming episodes. Especially with what happened at the end of Greenbacks. Which takes us to our review of Greenbacks. But first, we're just going to wrap up this portion of this episode we have a quick little musical interlude here and then we will get into our episode discussion of greenbacks review of the episode greenbacks we open on victoria bringing tea to her tower prisoner to make amends now we haven't actually talked about this scene from the garden of forking paths but big question about who this tower prisoner is is she rapunzel is she somebody else personally i think that she is mother gothel who is been younged up a little bit well there's there's definitely I wasn't so sure about that because we had mentioned it privately, but there's a shot when they shoot her from the back and she's got this long, you know, her hair is very dark and then she, it's, it's against the red that she's wearing. And like, I know enough about Tangle to know that that's kind of like Mother Gothel's like thing. So now I'm kind of more on board with that theory. 
And there also seems there appears to be like there are braids in her hair for sure. And there also appears to be a little bit of a blonde one in there. Like she cut Rapunzel's hair and braided it into her own to get the power. Exactly. That was kind of what I was Mm. thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyways, the switch reminds Victoria that if Lucy doesn't forfeit her belief, then Victoria will never see Anastasia again. Because that was the other thing we found out about the Garden of Forking Paths, which is that Anastasia is fucking alive. and Or not, but... Or not, but yeah. So then the witch tells her that she sees belief, Victoria that is, as something solid, but it's like a weed. It grows wild and deep, and there is one root. And I was kind of like double entendre there, because root like with a plant, or root like path to success. Um, Vic offers her Ah. some tea, and the witch calls it swill, demanding her special brew. (laughs) They kept calling it brew this entire episode, and I was just like, oh my god. Yeah, with your beer drinking ass. And then Vic, hey. <laughs> Vic promises that she will get her specialty when Victoria gets what she wants. And then she asks what route she should begin with. Now, mm. the fact that she wants her specialty and all that kind of stuff, like, and then they allude to it again at the end of this episode, I really feel like there's even more of a Gothel thing going on because something, what is this specialty? Why is it special? Why do you want it? What does it do to you? That kind of thing. So then downstairs, Lucy is waiting for Victoria to take her to ballet. Ivy is looking for an annoyed babysitter emoji. When Sabine arrives with beignets for Lucy, they look delicious. Victoria comes downstairs and Ivy asks where she's been. Victoria's like, funny, I thought you worked for me. Such a bitch. Victoria approaches Sabine and announces that she is increasing Sabine and just sends rent by 8% starting the next month. Lucy sticks up for them, but Sabine can fight her own battles. And she tells Victoria that if she wants to push them, well, honey, they're going to push right back. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in the alternate forest, Lady Eudora, Queen Eudora, it's kind of not clear, welcomes guests to their estate sale in the garden before uh-huh. joining Tiana. Drizella is there, too, in a fabulous look. Um, it's probably my favorite alternate realm dress so far. Oh, that that like magenta that she had going on. No, it was beautiful. like that dark purple with like the the. That's what magenta. Well, no, magenta is more, more pink, right? What's yeah. the, like a plum? It was more like plum with like those accents, and then her hair looked so cute, and it looked kind of like Victorian, but also something that like Regina would have worn, like the Evil Queen. Yeah, I noticed with the style of the dresses, it's not, like, super, like, medieval, quote-unquote, like how the Enchanted Forest is. Particularly with Tiana, they kind of did this whole, like, antebellum thing-looking thing. Yeah, which kind of surprised me because it's... Tiana is either in a blue or a green dress in the movie, and she didn't get that at all. Which, at first, I was kind of like, what the hell? And then later on in the story, too, when, like, none of the princess and the frog stuff really happened... For Tiana, except for Dr. Facilier, I was like, what? But then, you know, I read the article about how Naveen's going to be in the second half of the season instead. So we'll probably get more Princess and the Frog later on. I don't know. I've never seen it, so I was the, I didn't key into that. I, I had never seen it, so I was like, oh, I know who that is, Dr. Facilier. But other than that, I was like, are there supposed to be, like, references I'm getting? Because I don't know them. I think that that might be a bit of a... 
I don't know. What do you think about like the divergence? Because for me, having not seen it, I didn't feel like I was like missing anything or thinking, oh, they didn't do it right, quote unquote. But well, see, for me, I didn't necessarily feel like they weren't doing it right because I very much got the sense of the the reason I didn't see this happen right now is because they're going to do it later. Mm, okay. So I already kind of felt like I know that this is probably going to come down the pike later on. You can kind of feel that there is something more coming there, especially because of the whole Dr. Facilier thing with the ruby and it gave him magic again and then he used that to escape and there's a voodoo doll and is he connected to the curse is he not what's going on there how like Mm -hmm. you know i i feel like which makes me really happy i feel like dr facilier is somehow in on this new curse Mm -hmm. i kind of wonder if he is like the alternate forest version of rumple i hope that he's the alternate forest version of rumple um like just the 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 bad guy who is involved in everybody's life and has been kind of pulling strings for a while. Like we need a, we, the alternate forest needs a Palpatine beyond Lady Tremaine is what I will say. And oh, I think that's interesting though too, because they uh, made the um, comment, they made a point to make the comment of how Drazilla was nouveau riche where, I mean, we know that the stepmother marries uh, Cinderella's father to kind of, you know, get a leg up, but I feel like because they made a point of mentioning that, it's going to definitely play a big part later on. I just, I definitely, definitely dialed that into, oh, and the, um, I thought this was funny because I actually didn't know what the second word was when Drisella's like, oh yeah, you know, good for you for having this fet de... I oh again I can't remember the specific word but I I, I googled it because I was like it's a party of something. She said bankruptcy party. Rude. Hold on, because you sent it to me privately, so. I did. I was like, do you know what this means? It means this. Drusella is a bitch. Fete filet. Fete I think it's fete filet. Fete filet. Yeah. Bankruptcy. Our party. French listeners don't judge us. Yeah, please. I'm so sorry. That's like one accent that I don't have as much experience with but i will say too it kind of what actually surprised me about that scene is that they included french at all because i just wasn't expecting that um there was a lot of it like facilier says enchanté and yeah there was like the 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 creole and cajun was very much alive in this episode so i appreciate that Uh. um and then zella asks i'm calling drizella zella now by the way So Zella asks how much an item is. Tiana grabs a bell jar. It contains a medal of honor, a large ruby in the center. She explains it was given to her father after the war. Zella makes a bitch comment that it's too bad that her father isn't alive to protect her family there now and then walks away. Like, wow. And then Robin Gibbons comes over as Eudora wearing a terrible wig and Tiana <sighs> admits how upset she was to see their lives torn apart this way. But Eudora reminds her that the king has raised taxes on all the lands so that he can line their own pockets while the people starve. Now, that's where I got confused because I thought that Eudora was a queen and Tiana was a princess, but then she just said that a king raised taxes on everybody. Well, that was always kind of the thing, though, too, with with uh, the earlier seasons of Once Upon a Time is that you had, like, I mean, one, you kind of, well, actually, no, they kind of explained it, like, where it was like they were princesses of their own, like, like, their kingdoms operated more like states. So it's like, I am the princess of Illinois and you are the princess of California or whatever. That's how it kind of came off as like, they're all very close neighboring bordering states. 
except for Belle because her father was a lord. But um, with this, yeah, you're right. Like they kept calling her princess, and I'm wondering if they meant it as kind of like, like, oh, she's such a prince, prissy princess. She's been so sheltered, but later on in the episode when she's among the common people, they're like, princess, help us. So I'm wondering if this this king that like just sucks that we keep hearing about seized power, and that's why they're like completely um, they're broke because. Yeah, they're still technically, like, queen and princess, but they're not anymore. You know what I mean? Like, they kind of got, like... Yeah, like, was there a coup or something? Yeah. yeah. Um, and P.S., by the way, you are totally the princess of Illinois, and I am totally the princess of California. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then, after that, we go back to Hyperion Heights. Officer Rogers arrives with a box of evidence for his missing persons case. His missing person is Eloise Gardner. Mm-hmm. Case went cold about 10 years ago this month. 10 years ago this month. That seems relevant. Ronnie comes in oh, to look... Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Ronnie comes in to look things over, but Rogers is leaving for the precinct. Ronnie asks Henry what he was doing in the bar with Ivy the other night. Henry wants to give her another chance, but Ronnie says that she has seen this story before. It doesn't end with Henry happy. Hmm. Meanwhile, Sabine goes to Mr. Clocks to tell Jacinda that Victoria has raised their rent. But she has an idea and to escape Vic for good, as well as get the money together. She wants to make her beignets in the kitchen of Mr. Clucks and sell them at a profit. Now Jacinda asks where Sabine got the money for all the ingredients. And Sabine reveals that she spent all their rent money on it. Girl. That's so irresponsible. I had such a problem with that. Like, weirdly, I was just like, what? Yeah. I was like, no, no, no. This, no, uh-uh. Like, we're, we're millennials, girl. We don't, we can't do that. <laughs> So then Officer Rogers is walking when he comes across a drawing in Eloise Gardner's sketchbook, which shows a tower window, which is very Rapunzel, when he hears a commotion inside the precinct. So he runs in. A ginger man is attacking the officer, and Rogers knocks him out. Side note here. He asks the other officer where he found this guy, and the officer answers, Pleasure Island Cabaret. He was drunk. <laughs> he was drunk. Mouthy. And then Roger says, alcohol turns some people into jackasses. Now, it's funny because, number one, alcohol turns Fat Hook into a jackass, and he is Fat Hook. And number two, that makes the ginger dude, like the assailant, the perp, if you will, he appears to be Lampwick from Pinocchio. So, there's that. Roger sees a tattoo on the guy's wrist that matches a drawing in Eloise Gardner's sketchbook, which looks like forks in a clock formation? Something it looks like it looks like, well, it looks like a wheel. It looks like the wheel from the tarot almost. Like I, it's, mm. I feel like it's a take. Like I've seen similar um, drawings and runes before. I didn't look it up because I mean I don't like Google wheel with forks because it's gonna give me like garbage in Google images. Yeah, well, I've definitely if it's seen from something a tarot similar card, to that before. That so I feel like there is a facilier thing. Well, de- I mean, definitely because the I I you know when I have a deck of tarot cards are right over there, but I can't remember what the wheel means. Off the top of my head, because it's the wheel is the major on car, and Kara. Wow, I said that wrong. Interesting. Um, I'll have to do some ciphering, and come back for okay. next time, because I feel like we're this is the this isn't the last time we're going to be seeing Lampwick. Yeah, I don't think so either. So then, Jacinda is staunchly opposed to Sabine's latest crazy scheme. 
She needs a real plan to get away with with Lucy from Victoria. And Sabine says that she loves Lucy like she's her own daughter and they need to fight together. And so Jacinda agrees. Now back in the alternate forest, Tiana is walking along a dock? Something? In a lily pad covered area body of water. Um, P.S. by the way. When she's walking, she passes a man who sits down next to a woman, and it's very, very quick, but the man has a firefly and a pendant around a neck, around his neck, rather, and oh my god, it's Ray and Evangeline. It's Ray and Evangeline. And Ashley hasn't seen the movie, so she doesn't know what that means, but the rest of you who I... have seen the movie know who Ray and Evangeline are, and oh my god, it's Ray and Evangeline. Oh my god. I was so happy. Ashley, in the movie, Ray is the little firefly, and Evangeline is his deceased love. Aw. And he has a whole song about it, too. And, like, I'm, I want you to see it, so I don't want to ruin the ending of it for you. But it's, it's, it's related to something that you said earlier as far as the snow and charming montage, Happily Ever After, from Beauty. That's all I'm going to say. Um, so she's looking for the traveling soothsayer when she, Tiana, is recognized for who she is. Tiana's people want her to help, and they surround her when she is saved from the mob by the arrival of Dr. Facilier, who invites her into his domain. She enters his tent, and he tells her that soon a prince will be in her arms, and her troubles will evaporate. Tiana asks how he knows that she's looking for a prince, and he says that he has friends on the other side. He pours bones or something out on the table. They were rainbow colored, so I was like, you, you okay. roll the Yeah, you read the bones. Yeah, you read the bones. And he read her family history. He said that her wealth dried up like a raisin in the sun. And I was like, nice black reference there. I appreciate it. And that's why she's come to him to find the strong ruler who can save her in her kingdom. She has nothing to pay him with, but he will accept a smile on her face. She can consider it a discount. For a, quote, mm -hmm. desperate soul. The <laughs> path before her is clear. She will find the prince she seeks that very night if she follows the Red Crow. Now, the last time that somebody said desperate soul, it had to deal with Rumple. Rumple is kind of involved in casting the curse, if you remember. So that really makes me wonder even more if Facilier has something to do with this new darkness. Back in Hyperion Heights, Ivy arrives from a trip to three herbalists and a bunch of other places with some stuff for Vic to drink. Vic takes it immediately and goes to the elevator, and she tells Ivy that she would trade her for an actual assistant in a second, and Ivy needs to shut up and start earning her job title. So Ivy accesses the building's security cameras and watches Vic take the elevator up to her secret tower room. So she calls Henry and leaves him a message offering dirt on Victoria. That's when Henry arrives at Ronnie's to tell her that Ivy told him about Victoria going up to her secret room. Ronnie is concerned that he's falling for Ivy when he could be going for Jacinda because he is genuine and Ivy isn't. And he appreciates the mama bear routine, but she isn't his mother. <laughs> she says, yeah, well, if your mother were standing here, she'd tell you three things. Get back to writing, take Jacinda on a date, and tip me well for giving you advice you so desperately need to hear. He gets up to pee. Ronnie sees his phone going off with a text from Ivy, so she looks at it and replies that she, he is on his way back, and then she deletes the messages. Again, not... I do love a good intrigue. Not a great thing to do, but yes, in intrigue. 
So Sabine is mixing ingredients for her beignets back in the kitchen, which not only looked amazing and made me want to try a beignet because I don't think I've ever had one. Oh my god, they're so good. Uh, they look like it. It was set to a really nice jazz soundtrack as well, which fits in with The Princess and the Frog. She comes out front to find a crowd waiting for more beignets, and Lucy comes in to help. She lied to Victoria. She also brought a stamp for all their bags, which is a firefly with stars, because one time Sabine told her that when she was growing up, she was so poor she couldn't even afford stars, so she wished on fireflies. <sighs> fireflies are like a thing in Princess and the Frog, so that's like... <laughs> so Sabine... Oh! <laughs> yeah, so Sabine loves it. It's their new logo. The two of them start talking about their dreams of a food truck. It's very, very sweet. Back in the forest, alternate forest, Tiana thinks Vasilia was a charlatan, but she discovers a crow, which leads her to the Crimson Crow Tavern, and she, which reminded me for just a minute of the bar where Regina went to go meet Robin. She enters and is accosted mm. by a creepy drunk guy who wants her earrings before a prince arrives to save her, threatening to take the guy's legs off if he doesn't behave. Then he introduces himself as Prince Marius, but please call him Robert, which I feel like there's a reference here that I didn't get, because I that's not from Princess yeah, and the same. Frog, as far as I know. Call me Robert. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. I bet that's it, though. That's hilarious. Kudos to you. Clever. Mm -hmm. She thanks him, but Yay. she's not deserving of this from a noble, and he disagrees and offers to buy her dinner. Now, back in Hyperion Heights, Victoria is enjoying a little bit of a bite to eat herself. She takes a bite of a beignet. Uh. She clearly loves it. So she calls a man named Ralph and then tells him to wreck it. That cracked me up. I was like, all right, good on you, show. I also thought her reaction to the beignet was just hysterical. She's like, this is amazing. Wait, I can't have emotions. No. Yeah, right. Because at first she was like, oh, my God, this is delicious. Oh, my God, no, I have to hate this. Kill it. Destroy it now. <laughs> Such a bitch. So then at the police station, Rogers asks the perp if he recognizes the drawing in the book, which is the one of his tattoo, and the perp... Where were they having this interrogation? Yeah, like, I don't... Where was that the, interrogation? Like, it was the weirdest thing happening there. It looked like it was happening it was at like the It was like in the parking lot. It, it did. It looked like they were like in like the parking garage, and they were like... It, yeah, I wasn't sure. Um, and then he told Rogers that he hits like a girl, so he's totally Lampwick. And then Rogers sits down and asks about Eloise Gardner, and the perp is... He was serving a sentence back when that happened, and that's where he got the tattoo, which he was told wards off evil. Rogers says he's a liar. Lampy insists that he's telling the truth, and Rogers goes to leave and tells him that he'll be out in ten minutes. Meanwhile, the perp tells Rogers... That the drawing is a powerful rune, and if he was the missing girl, he'd hate to be facing whatever evil it was that, you know, was threatening her. Dun-dun-dun. So then in the kitchen at, at the Mr. Clucks, Jacinda and Sabine are serving beignets out front when they hear noise in the back. And they go back there to discover that the kitchen is on fire. A lot. There's a ton of fire. Lots of it. Lots of fire. So Sabine grabs their money, she pulls the alarm, and they go. And back in the forest, Tiana is showing Robert the landscape outside of her house, complete with fireflies and willow trees. She regales him with the story of her father's fight in the war, and how he won the pendant, how it made him a prince, all of those things. 
and Robert wants to see Tiana again, the next day as a matter of fact, but she sees that the pendant is missing after he leaves, and she quickly finds it on him. Robert admits the facility made him steal the pendant, and she doesn't believe him. That's when he admits that he's not really a prince, but a commoner, separated from his true love by a curse. He is a man. She is a frog. Facilier told the man, being Robert, that true love's kiss would break the curse if only he brought Facilier the ruby from the pendant. While Tiana insists that he get the hell out of there, and she goes outside... She's out on the pad on her, you know, on her balcony there waiting for Romeo to show up. And her mother brings her a drink, which I think was a mint julep. And they talk about how Eudora has protected Tiana from the realities of how poor the kingdom has become. And that she, Eudora, failed Tiana by not telling Tiana the truth and by sending her out looking for love instead. Eudora admits that Tiana's father's legacy isn't in the ruby. It's in Tiana. All she has to do is embrace it. Back in Hyperion Heights, the fire department has arrived at Mr. Cluck's, which has burned down. Lucy and Jacinda go to Sabine, and Jacinda wants to talk. Now, Sabine says that this is just a setback, but Jacinda is pissed. She doesn't want Sabine's help anymore. She doesn't even want her living there anymore. So Sabine offers her the money that they made that day, which is enough for two months worth of rent. So Jacinda has enough time to find a new job and a new roommate. And then Sabine leaves. Meanwhile, Ronnie goes to meet Ivy and tells her to back off of Henry in her little revenge attempt against Jacinda. But Ivy tells her that she's actually risking everything by helping the two of them. And then she takes Ronnie upstairs to the secret room. She goes around the corner. They find the tea set from earlier, but there's no witch. Ronnie says it clearly wasn't a tea party for one. Victoria was up there with somebody, but Ivy says that Vic always comes up there alone. And that's when Ronnie opens the vault door and sees something shocking. Lucy asks Sabine where she's going. Sabine says that she's going to her mom's. Sabine tells Lucy that she's failing where she is, and that's why she wants to go there. Lucy explains that she can't give up on her dream, and Sabine tells her that some people have to give up on their dream, and sometimes bad guys win. We have to grow up and accept that. Social commentary much? Wait. Lucy doesn't want her to go, but Sabine tells her that there are some things in life that even she can't fight. Now back in the forest, Facilier is in his tent making a voodoo doll when Tiana arrives with her father's pendant in exchange for the woman that he kidnapped from Robert. Facilier gestures to the frog in the cage, laughing, but Tiana wants to make the deal regardless. Vasilia mentions how the ruby was powerful enough to transform her father from a cook into a prince and even had an effect on her, but she insists there is no magic in that ruby. It didn't transform her at all, but he disagrees and uses it to escape some sort of a prison that he's in. Lots of light movement and noises and wind and things. He refuses to give her the frog, but she pulls a sword on him, very much like Snow White. And then that's just too bad, though, because he stabs the voodoo doll he's been making, and it really has a pretty bad effect on her. Starts falling over, she knocks over the table, which in turn makes him drop the voodoo doll. Things happen. She ends up taking the frog in the cage and holding the sword on him before he can stab the doll again. He holds up the ruby, saying that he really is the one who got the best of their bargain. And then he uses that to disappear. 
and Tiana still feels victorious at having gotten the frog. Well, girl, he just took your daddy's ruby, and he's clearly got some magic now, and he just stabbed you as a voodoo doll, so you may not want to feel too victorious just yet. Hmm. Back in Hyperion Heights, Jacinda shows up, and Shaj just stops Sabine from leaving because Lucy called her to talk some sense into her, mm-hmm. and Jacinda regrets her words from earlier. She apologizes for not being there for Sabine the way Sabine has been there for her and Lucy, and then she reveals that she spent that rent money on a brand new food truck that she bought from the impound lot, apparently with Officer Roger's help. Now that brings us to the point that we were talking about earlier, which is showing versus telling, because we got told a lot of these things and we didn't see them. And I appreciate why we didn't see them, because do we really need to see a conversation between Lucy and Jacinda? Probably not. Did we need to see Roger's help them buy the food truck? Probably not. But since you're the one who made the initial call on this, I want to make sure you get your opinion in as well. Oh, sure. It's just, I I feel like it felt like they were rushing towards the end at that point because, like, several things happened in in rapid succession. It was like, oh, Lucy called me and fixed fixed everything. And then uh, Rogers, who I'm not really sure that Jacinda and Rogers have had a significant, like, interaction before that at least nothing that like you know jumps to my mind i could be wrong um but he's like yeah he totally found me a food truck like but he's not really friends with any of them i don't think mm. so it just seems like okay we, we need to we need to fix this conflict and get us back to a good happy place and that i think is my biggest problem with me with this episode is that i i, I felt after beauty being so like oh my gosh i felt a little disengaged with this partially because again i haven't seen the princess and the frog um but also partially that like like the whole all of the flashback uh scenes just they didn't carry any weight to what was really happening um to currently in hyperion heights and then the hyperion heights like not a lot of it carried a lot of weight um I felt like like something like the reveal of the shocking uh, <laughs> photograph. Uh, look at this photograph! By the way, I had to do that. But the, the, that photograph that Ronnie found, I felt like a lot of that, that, the punch that that could have packed was taken away from it being so prominently featured in the, you know, preview for, you know, the episode. Like, if that had just been not telegraphed at all, and then a uh, you know then something that happens like just within the episode like as a as a true surprise or twist I feel like that would have been like one of the kickers of the episode but since we kind of knew already where it was going it was like okay so let's just get there you know yeah yeah I can get that um, I mean I kind of wanted them to get to the end too I didn't necessarily need to see any of that which is kind of where I was coming from I think but. Right. Yeah, show versus tell. It's interesting because, yeah, like, yeah. There's just a lot to learn about screenwriting, I guess. So Mm -hmm. this is just an interesting exercise, I will say. Mm -hmm. So later on, Tiana meets Prince Marius, Robert, whatever, um, by the pawns and gives him back his true love in the cage. She apologizes, saying that she doesn't need a hero if she can be a hero. She says that the king will have a ball soon and the doors will be open, so she'll use that to her advantage to turn the tide. 
She wants him and his lady love to accompany her to the ball, but he admits that he misled her before. She asks how, and in response, he merely takes out his lady love, puts her in tea on his hands, and kisses her. And then he turns into a frog, and they nuzzle, and they look at Tiana in gratitude, and then they jumped off into the pond, and I'm shipping CG frogs, and I need to put down the wine. <laughs> oh my god. And then back in Hyperion Heights, Sabine arrives to give Roger some beignets and gratitude for his help in finding the food truck. He tells her that it was taken in a drug sting, so she should probably clean it thoroughly. Nice. He tells her that their investigation, Mr. Clark, shows that it was the fire was deliberate, and they both immediately suspect Victoria. Outside, Lampy is watching them in the police station when he makes a phone call to somebody. They've got a problem. Someone's looking for the girl. Victoria is on her phone looking at a picture of Sabine and Jacinda on their food truck. The app was called Picked Your This, as in Picture This, instead of Instagram. Mm. That's when Ivy arrives and she asks if there's anything that she can do to help alleviate Victoria's bad day. Vic says it's very kind of her. She's always liked the idea of raising a daughter and guiding her, and eventually there'd come a day when the roles would reverse and she would be there for Victoria to lean on. But not all daughters are created equal. It's embarrassing to watch Ivy flail around, not understanding all the things she's capable of and all the ways she's going to fall short. She should think about that and fix her makeup. God, she's such a bitch. Henry arrives at Ronnie's, and he wants to talk to her about some stuff, but first she wants to tell him that she answered a text from Ivy on his phone, so she apologizes, saying that she just wanted to know if they could trust Ivy or not. And before they can get into their business, she shows him what she found in the vault, which is a photo of her as Mayor Mills holding Henry, child Henry, complete with Tron lunchbox in Storybrooke. She doesn't recognize the kid, but Henry does. It's him. Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, upstairs, Ivy arrives in the elevator, and the witch appears out of nowhere, scaring her. And Ivy's like, lurk much? And the witch reminds her that it was <laughs> Ivy who asked her to hide. Ivy says that she meant from Ronnie, not from her, and they need to find the witch a stylist. <laughs> the witch asks if it worked, if they trust her, and Ivy says yes, almost as much as her foolish mother does. The witch tells her they did a good job of convincing Vic that she's in charge and that Ivy is a good girl. Now, Ivy's face really changes when she says that. Oh, yeah. I was picking up on that, like, where where this was happening. Mm-hmm. The whole mother thing? Yeah, Mother Gothel, hello. Yeah. Um, so Ivy is clearly moved, but she moves on, saying that the witch has to take credit for breaking the tea set and demand more of her special brew and play the charade out until the end. And the witch tells Ivy, of course she will. But Ivy says, don't call her Ivy. It's Drizella. Because the bitch is awake. Right. So, which leads to our other conversation from earlier. How is she awake? What? She probably thinks she's the only one who's awake. I mean, aside from maybe Belfry. And then, then, so it's like, well, what, 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 what? Yeah, like, how are they awake? Like, who cast the curse? How are they awake? Why? Oh, how, what does the witch have to do with this? How does Facilier work into all of this as well? What's happening here? Like, I really can't plot this out. I know I say that a lot, but like, 
genuinely, I anything I would say is going to be 100% wrong. Well, yeah, because normally we are pretty good at plotting this, this out, and I have no idea what the hell is going on. Like, I've got theories. I've got some theory. We kind of have gone over them a little bit already, mm-hmm. but I don't have, like, because they keep throwing new stuff at us that doesn't make sense, and I'm like, what? Like, how does that... So I'm just waiting, yeah. How does that fit with what we already know? It doesn't. I'm, mi- I'm missing pieces. Mm-hmm. Assholes. <laughs> to, with said with love. Said with love, but yes. Yeah, dude. That's, that's I don't it. know. I don't know what to make of any of that. The thing about this is, and I've noticed this in a couple of episodes now, and like I said, Greenbacks really didn't grab me, um, except for that last scene where it's like, oh, dang, she awake. Um... And I feel like that might be a bit of a fault in this season where you have stuff that's happening and it's like, all right, yeah, that's a thing. And then you have like this wham at the end of like almost like every episode where it's like, you know, Rumble's awake and Victoria is awake and Drusilla is awake. And all these are like the last five minute things that are happening that it's kind of like a disconnect with what's going on in the episode. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I I just... I just gotta like stop doing that. Yeah, I kind of am like I like the I like the fact that there's such a good hook at the end of these, but then I'm also kind of like I don't want it to only be the last five minutes of the show. Right, right. Like, exactly. I, I want it to play out a little bit more than that, and I feel like it will in the future too. I mean, I don't know this. This is a hard one to figure out. Like this is a this story. I really can't. Like you said, I can't plot this out, and I feel like normally we're good at this. I feel like we're we're. On to something with the Gothel thing and the witch in the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's something there. I feel like there's something up with Alice and Hook. Um, at the same time, I feel like making her his daughter is the too obvious thing. But then it's kind of like, if this is like the Force Awakens, is Alice Ray, you know, mm-hmm. like to Hook's luke i guess in this case like i don't know i it's it's a really uh, i don't know i don't know like right like i just uh, it's it's a it's difficult so i have no idea i really don't i'm excited to try and figure this out i'm excited to keep watching and see where it goes i am especially excited for this upcoming episode wake up call to find out what's happening there with Ronnie and Zella is awake and just what the hell is happening. So, <laughs> yeah, super excited. So wait, what episode? For that. What, what episode was this? Was episode four? What episode is this, Greenbacks? Four or five? Five. So we're halfway there. Then we've got five more episodes, and then we're gonna be on a hiatus. Well, we don't know yet, really. They haven't said how this thing is going to work. One would assume. So we don't know if they're really going to split the season or not. Don't really know. I mean, there will be there will be at least. A, I mean, we'll have a break for Thanksgiving because no one's going to be really watching television on Black Friday, and then we're probably going to have a, a break because Christmas and Christmas right. Eve are uh, was it Sunday and Monday. So they're probably not going to do an episode on that as well. So and and we'll be we'll definitely be at five before that. I honestly think like I I have a obviously we don't know for sure, but I really do think they're going to at least take a couple of weeks break during the holidays just because the yeah. holidays fall so close. I to mean yeah, yeah well you can and, kind and of figure it out. Normal. You can kind of figure it out based off of like holiday scheduling. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, guys, that's going to be it for this special doubleheader episode of the Once Upon a Fan podcast. Again, thank you all so much for your patience um, as we've been trying to get these episodes up to you. Uh, we really appreciate you bearing with us, especially me, because it's kind of been my fault a little bit. Um, so thank you guys very much for remaining patient, remaining loyal listeners. We appreciate you guys. We will be back next week with our all-new review of Wake Up Call, which is heavily focused on Ronnie. Can't wait. Mm -hmm. As well as any other news that we have for you. Until then, I am Zach Van Norman. And I'm Ashley Benson. And thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.